Our sermon for today will be taken from Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 36. This is the word of the Lord. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable! Are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen thus says the Lord Okay, friends, let's pray uh, before we dive into God's Word today. Father, as we close Romans chapter 11, I pray that the Word that you are speaking to your people today would be fruitful and that you would actually change hearts and that there won't be just empty words, but actually words of power in what you intended your Scripture to be. We pray for more mercy and that your Spirit would accomplish the purpose in which why your Word was sent out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be uh, continuing in the series through the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 11, and after we're done with the sermon, we're going to talk about um, three different topics for the next three Sundays, all topics that relate with um, how to endure through this time in, in, our, in our pandemic. Uh, there are certain things that we should, as Christians, miss in this time of pandemic, such as public worship, fellowship and even taking communion together. We're going to talk about those three things in the next three Sundays because sometimes when we don't do things for a while, we kind of grow callous or lose an appetite for it. We want to make sure that doesn't happen to us, so we're going to teach on these subjects and hope that our appetite for it would increase now that we're not able to do it and we would hunger and thirst for those things more, okay? But today we're going to finish off chapter 11, and this is kind of the end of a big teaching uh, session that Paul has been doing since chapter 9. It's kind of its own chunk in the book of Romans. And you know how if you watch a good movie or when you're done reading a good book, usually at the end, you kind of start to see how these different pieces kind of connect with one another, right? Pieces in the story that was mentioned, different storylines, different characters that might have at first felt disconnected. Now at the end, the author shows us how all of these topics and characters and issues are actually intertwined 
and they relate with one another. Well, that's kind of what's happening here at the end of Romans chapter 11. Paul's kind of tying together everything that he's been talking about since Romans chapter 9. Well, what are the main things that Paul's been talking about since Romans chapter 9? Well, there, there, there's three things. One main issue he's been talking about is the issue of Christian unity. Remember that? There's a bunch of Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church that were fighting. They're having a hard time getting along. So that's one theme, Christian unity. The second main issue that Paul's been talking about since chapter 9, it's a sensitive one these days, but it's the issue of predestination and election. That's what Romans chapter 9 and 10 is about, right? That God saves sinners, not reactively, right? He's not searching the earth saying, oh, he received Christ or he is open, oh, he wants to repent and then saving those people. No, God saves sinners proactively. He chooses who received Christ. And the only reason why we can receive Christ is because God chose us first before the foundations of the earth. I know that's a sensitive issue, but that's what Paul talks about here, Romans chapter 9 and 10. And the third main thing that Paul talks about is a Christian view of God. Okay, so throughout these chapters, Paul kept on saying things like, who are you, O man, to speak back to God? And things like that. What is he doing there? He's trying to show us that God is a big God. And there are things about God that perhaps we can't really comprehend as humans. All right, so those, those three main things. First, Paul's telling us at the end of Romans 11 how all of these things are in interconnected. The idea of Christian community, the Christian's claim of salvation, and the Christian's view of God. Okay, these are very intertwined, and in fact, we can't really understand or appreciate one without seeing how it connects with the other. So, so let's dive in, see what we can lear learn from Paul here about those three things. First point, about how Christianity offers a unique kind of community because it has a unique view of salvation that is based on a very big view of God. Okay, let's talk about the first one. Christianity offers a unique kind of community, a unique kind of unity. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying here that every church or every Christian community on earth is perfect, okay? Of course it's not. The church that Paul himself was writing to here in Rome was not perfect. There's a lot of infighting, remember, namely between the Jews and the Gentiles, or the Jews and, and the non-Jewish people, kind of like the church today, right? There's, there's infighting everywhere. It, if you're American, I'm sure you've heard the claim that the most segregated time of the week in America is Sunday mornings. In Indonesia, same story. Even, even in the same church, those who come from same, the same ethnicity, social background, personalities, would usually gravitate toward others from the same ethnicity, social background, and personalities, and vice versa. It's, it's been an issue, it still is an issue, Christian unity is complicated. And Paul touch, touches on that issue again here at the end of chapter 11, he says in verse 25, he says, do not be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The point here, verse 25, is Paul wanted to remind the Jewish and the Gentile Christians here in Rome back then that the kingdom of God won't just consist of Israelites or just Gentiles, but it's both cultures, not just one. Okay, we'll, we'll get into that, but another important detail you can't miss from the passage, from this verse here, is that if, if you read it there, there's kind of an order in, in the timeline as to which nation or which culture would come in first. We'll look at it again, verse 25 to 26. Paul says, first, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. 
So yes, the story is that in the Old Testament, God favored the Jews, right? That's Old Testament. It's all about God being with the Jewish people. But then when Christ came, a partial hardening has come on Israel. And now, after Christ came, the Gentiles or the non-Jews are the ones who are receiving Christ. They're the ones who are entering God's kingdom. But the Jews are rejecting God or Christ. But then, Paul says, somehow, when the fullness of Gentiles have come in, the Jews are going to come in again, and it's all just really confusing. Here's, here's the point. The point is that the true God of the Bible does not associate himself to any one particular culture. For the past hundred years or so, Christianity, I think, for the most part, has been viewed mainly as a Western religion, right? Most big churches come from the West. Most Christian literature and big Christian figures come from the West. Jesus, when in paintings, is often painted as white and blonde, right? And this has caused a lot of people in Indonesia, too, to identify Christianity as a white person's religion. Some would even go as far as saying that it's the religion of the colonizers, of the penjajah, because Christianity came from Europe mainly, and the Dutch did colonize us for three and a half centuries. So it makes sense why a lot of, of us would, would view it that way. But I, I find this interesting. If you actually read Christian history, books like The Next Christendom by Philip Jenkins, which talks about the progress of Christianity throughout the ages, it is interesting to see that the center of Christianity and a lot of sociologists would affirm this, can't actually be pinpointed to one geographical space or cultural area. And, and this is unique because in most other world religions, wherever that religion was originally found, usually the center vocal point of that religion, I mean, it, it shift a little bit here and there, but generally it stay within that general cultural sphere or geographical space. But Christianity, if you trace it, the center moves actually quite dramatically. First, you find it in the ancient Near East, right? The early church, first, second century, Justin Martyr, uh, all, those, all those people. And then, and then it went to South Africa, third and fourth century, right? Augustine. And then it went to Roman Italy, fifth century onwards. And then it bounced around to different other parts of Europe and also to Spain, 14th, 18th century. And then it moved to the Western Hemisphere, North and South Americas, the past hundred years or so. And now a lot of people are saying it's leaving the Western Hemisphere and it's coming to the global South. In other words, Africa and Asia, which I don't know if that's true. I'm just saying that's what the pattern looks like if you pay attention to statistical growth of, of the church globally. Christianity is the only world religion whose center has moved around the globe this dramatically. So whose religion is Christianity? Does it belong to the Jews or the Gentiles or someone else? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask at what point of history, I guess, right? If you ask a first century person, they'd say it's an Asian minor religion. If you ask a 20th century person, they would tell you it's an Anglo-Saxon European religion. Paul here is saying you can't think like that. If you associate Christianity with just one particular culture or country, that means you're being wise in your own sight. That's what Paul means in verse 25. You think Christianity is a white person's religion, but that's only because you live in the 21st century. And that's all your sight sees right now. So of course you'd think that. But don't be wise in your own sight. God doesn't love one country or culture on earth more than he loves other countries or cultures on earth. Now let me make this relevant for us here at Covenant City Church a little bit more. This division is an issue here at Covenant City Church, of course, right? As it is in every other church. 
Why? Because the members of Covenant City Church consist of many people from different countries. Indonesia, America, Canada, Australia. That's true, but here's what I want to propose. I think the issue for us is much more complicated than that. What do I mean? My wife, uh, Tatiana, recently read this book called The Glass Hotel. And in this book, there's a character named Mirella, very rich lady, who is kind of a citizen of the world kind of person, you know, lived in London, in Singapore, in New York, and in different countries her whole life. And someone at one point of the, in the book asked her, wow, it must have been really exciting for you to live in these different places, right? Life must have been so different for you in, in these different countries, so exciting. And Marilla surprisingly responded like this. She said, my life actually wasn't that different in these different places. And the other person was confused. What do you mean? Your life wasn't that different in these different countries. These are very different places, London, Singapore, New York, right? Totally different countries, totally different cultures. And this was Marilla's response. She said, yes, those places are very different, but my life in them was the same. It was just a background change of scenery. You know what I've learned about money, Marilla continues. I was trying to figure out why my life felt more or less the same in Singapore as it did in London and New York. And that's when I realized that money is its own country. Here's what she's saying. She can go to London, Singapore, New York, Indonesia, China, Korea, India. It doesn't really matter. She'll pretty much experience the same kind of life. She'd generally go to the same kind of hotels, eat the same kind of quality of food, interact with the same kind of people that came from the same kind of background, that speaks the same kind of common language. You see, money is its own country. The only thing that changed, she said really, was the background scenery. But functionally, the country of money, Marilla quotes, no matter where you go in the world, has its own customs, rituals, traditions, and rules. And in this book, there's a lot of other different countries. There's a country of money. There's a shadow country, which was the country of the poor. There's a country of the sick. You see, the list can go on. Each country has its own customs, rituals, traditions, and rules, no matter where you go geographically. Covenant City Church has a lot of different people from a lot of different countries. And I don't just mean that geographically. You can have the same passport but yet belong to two very different countries. And that's why it's so complicated to reach this Christian unity that Paul's pushing for here. It's much more complex than just your skin color or ethnicity or your nationality, you see. Okay, so what do we do? Well, we must not be wise in our own sight. Yes, you're right that at this particular point in time, there's more Gentiles, but don't be prideful. In the past, there are more Jews. And in the future, there may be more Jews again. No one country has the right to call bids on Jesus. So in your local church at this moment, whether that's Covenant City Church or another church, you might have more people from one country and less people from another country. And if you happen to come from that country that is in majority right now, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. God doesn't favor you intrinsically because you're from that country. Or if you come from a country that happens to be minority at the time, don't feel insecure. Don't feel insecure. No country can call bids on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus didn't ultimately come from a particular country, Paul continues in verse 26, as he quotes Isaiah 59. Yes, he's born a Jew, but ultimately, verse 26, Paul says he comes from where? From Zion. 
from heaven. He's God. He's transcendent. He's above cultures. He's above any one particular country or people group, you see. Now, as Paul continues in our passage in verses 28 to 29, what you see Paul doing here is he's connecting this idea of Christian unity with the understanding of Christian salvation. Okay, and he touches back to the issue of predestination and election that we already talked about in chapter 9 and 10. But why does Paul do that? How does the issue of Christian unity that we just talked about have anything, has anything to do with the idea of predestination or election? Leads us to our second point. Christianity offers a unique kind of community because it has a unique view of salvation. Okay, point two. Look, Paul continues to say here, the danger of looking at Christendom using just your sight, just what you see, if you do that, it's going to seem like God's fluctuating on a whim, right? That's what Paul continues to say here in verse 30 to 31. First, you have the Jews in the Old Testament, didn't care much about the Gentiles, but then in the New Testament, God left the Jews and he paid more attention to the Gentiles. But then after that, God's going to change his mind again and go back to the Jews again. That's what it's going to seem like if, if you rely on your physical sight. God's going to look like this reactive God who goes and saves people based on who's closest to repenting and receiving Christ. Oh, the Gentiles are disobedient? I'll go to the Jews. Oh, the Jews are disobedient? Okay, I'll go to the Gentiles. But God's not that whimsical. He's not that flippant. Behind all this, Paul says in verse 28 to 29, God's work of election, God's gift and irrevocable calling is what's driving the whole thing, meaning the whole timeline and order of who God saves when, that's been predecided by God. He's a proactive God. He isn't getting tossed around by some random pattern of salvation in history. It's the other way around. His work of election, his irrevocable calling, that's what determines the pattern of salvation history. So it's not like he's in heaven, you know, and all of a sudden, the fourth century comes around and he goes, huh, Augustine, huh? That's interesting. Never thought he would start a movement. I guess I'll pay attention to South Africa now. And then the 16th century rolls around and God goes, Geneva, huh? That's cool. They didn't think Calvin would come through. You know, okay, I guess let's focus on Europe. And then the 18th century rolls around and he goes, the Great Awakening in America? Americans? Who would have thought? <laughs> okay, let's pay attention to America. And then that 21st century comes around, around and God goes, hmm, according to church growth statistics, you know, Asia looks like it's next. My money's on Asia. Paul's saying that's not how it works. God's not reactive like that. God predetermines and decides who gets saved when. And no one can complain about whatever pattern of order God has chosen. Why not? Because the whole thing was based on mercy to begin with. That's what he says in verse 32. God has consigned, has given over all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. We've all been disobedient, Paul's saying here. Gentiles, Jews, Americans, Indonesians, Chinese, Korean, African, rich, poor, sick, healthy, whatever country you come from, you've sinned. I've sinned. And God owes no one salvation. Salvation is not a right to be demanded of God. It's a merciful gift to be begged for. The Bible doesn't portray us as victims to be saved. We are the sinners. We're the, we're the antagonists. We're the criminals. But yet, God had mercy on us when he died on the cross and took away our sins and paid all our debt. The whole thing was based on mercy. And we can't complain 
about who God puts in his kingdom when and what kind of demographic has become the majority demographic of Christendom at a given time. We can't complain. Now, I said earlier this connects with the idea of Christian unity. So let's bring this down to the level of the local church or to the idea of, of Christian unity. How does this connect? Well, if this is true, if this idea of predestination, God predeciding all this is true, that means the demographic of your local church isn't coincidental. That means God's irrevocably elected for it to be that way. And if you believe that the demographic of your church isn't coincidental, you're going to be able to endure people more. How so? Look, as we already said, the reason why it's so hard for you to build relationships at church is because at your church, there are many different people that come from many different countries, right? And these different people from these different countries are constantly rubbing shoulders with one another, and someone's bound to make a cultural hiccup. Someone in your church who comes from the country of youth may put their feet up on the chair during conversation and offend somebody who comes from the country of age or from the country of wisdom, if you prefer that. Someone from the country of money may invite everyone to eat at this really expensive restaurant and make others who didn't come from that country feel left out and marginalized. Someone from the country of individualism may say no a little too directly and too quickly to someone who comes from the country of community, who's not used to such direct language. If you think all of those cultural hiccups is just happening at your church by chance, randomly, for no particular reason, because your church just happens to have this kind of demographic, you're gonna get really frustrated really quick. And you probably won't have the endurance to, to stick with it for very long. But if you believe that God has elected and irrevocably called particular groups of people to your church, which has therefore shaped the demographic of your church a particular way in this particular time, which perhaps is causing some of these cultural hiccups you're experiencing, if you really believe that, you know what that'll do to you? It'll make you pause and think about what perhaps is God's purpose here for these discomforts, for these relational tensions. If he chose it to be this way, what perhaps is his intention for putting these people in our church at this particular point in time? Why would God put me, a Jew, in a Gentile majority church? A Jew might have thought back then. Or why would God put this Jew in our Gentile majority church, they might have asked. Well, if God elected for this to happen, there must be a reason. What is it? Well, here it is, is to build you up in the likeness of Christ. That's the purpose. It's to help you as a people display the love and grace and patience of Christ to the whole world by the way you guys love one another, even when it's really hard to do so. What's the first description of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Love is what? Love is patient. How can you be patient if there's nothing to be patient about? It's meant to be hard, guys. Knowing this will make you less worried about escaping relational tensions in your church and more worried about persevering through them with a Christ-like manner. It'll make you view church with less of a consumeristic kind of way and more with servanthood lenses, you see, because God's purposed it to be this way. See, the Christian view of election very much is connected and influences Christian unity. 
it's, it's connected. But let's be honest, this idea of predestination and election, it is really hard for a lot of people to, to accept and, and, and grapple with and, 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 and kind of uh, embrace this particular view of salvation. You guys know all this talk on predestination and election. It's very triggering, hard to understand, and it's going to bring up a lot of mystery. And that's why Paul continues in the last few verses of the passage to show us that if you find all this talk about predestination, God's sovereignty, the pattern of redemptive history, all that to be a little mysterious, that's okay. But not only is it okay, it's actually good. How so? Well, let's end in verses 33 to 36. Christianity offers a unique kind of community because it has a unique view of salvation that is based on a very big view of God. If you start to just think a little bit more about predestination, God's sovereignty and electing people, everything that Paul's been talking about here since Romans chapter 9, at some point, your mind's going to be blown. And you're going to come across mysteries about God that your human mind won't be able to fully comprehend. Let me give you an example, and stick with me here. I'm going to get a bit heady, but it's, it's, it's for a purpose, okay? It's to show us the limits of our minds. Look at verse 32. He says, Paul says, For God has consigned or given over all to disobedience, that he may have mercy in all. Okay, God is the one who gives people over to disobedience. There's Gentiles, then Jews, then Gentiles again. That's Paul's argument in verse 30, 31, right? But think about that verse for a second. How does that work? Doesn't God hate disobedience? Doesn't God hate sin? Yes. So then why would he give people over to disobedience? That seems to be going against James 1.13 that clearly says God tempts no one. So how can God not be liable in tempting anyone, as James said, but yet still give people over to disobedience, like what Paul here says. See, it's mysterious. But don't give up just yet. Keep thinking. There's an answer. Here's how. When God gives people over to sin, Bible says God didn't make them sin, as in God made them do something they wouldn't have done themselves otherwise, but rather God simply allowed them to sin. He backed off, and he allowed them to do what they would have naturally done anyways. It's their fault, so therefore God's not liable for it, which is biblical, right? In Exodus, it says God both hardened Pharaoh's heart, but also Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Okay, mystery solved, right? Not really. Because you've got to ask yourself, why are people naturally prone to sin in the first place? Well, because Adam and Eve sinned and ate the fruit of the garden, so now we're all, you know, uh, born in sin. Okay, but who put the fruit in the garden there? God did. So then did God tempt Adam and Eve to sin? How can he not be guilty for that? Now, there's an answer to that, and we, we can keep going, uh, and we should keep going, right? Because the Bible calls us to love God with all of our heart, strength, mind, and soul. Push through these mysteries. Try and figure it out. Search the Bible for it. My point here is this. Even if we did keep going, at some point, we as humans, we're not going to be able to satisfactorily tame all mystery of God's work, of predestination, of election, of salvation, of redemptive history. We have our limits, and that's okay. And not only is that okay, I want to argue you from verses 33 to 36, that mystery is actually the very thing that drove Paul to worship. Look at verse 33. Look at what Paul says. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You, you see that act of worship? He went from teaching to singing to worshiping. 
This is the only time in the New Testament, by the way, where a verse was started by the phrase, oh, Paul here is bursting to worship. Why? Because he's figured out God? No. Because he's encountered, as a book, of, as a book once title says, Paul's encountered the majesty of mystery. God's wisdom is deep, Paul says here in, 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 in this verse. Notice he didn't say deeper, because if he says deeper, that implies it can still be uh, relatively compared to another wisdom that's less deep. No, 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 no. God's wisdom is not deeper as if there's something else to compare it to. It's in a whole different playing field altogether. It's deep. It's mysterious. Okay, now let me talk a little bit more about this. Mystery is not mysticism. That's not what I'm saying. Mysticism says you can't know God at all. You shouldn't even try. That's not what Christianity says. You can know God. Paul's been trying to help us get to know God since chapter 9. Mystery is different than mysticism. But also, mystery is different than rationalism. Rationalism says, if I can't fully make sense of something, it can't be true. Okay? Christianity is distinct from mysticism because you can know a lot about God through the Bible and through nature. But it's also distinct from rationalism because at the end of the day, no no matter how much you study the book of Scripture and the book of nature, there will always remain mystery, and that's okay. In fact, mystery, as Hermann Bavink says, is the bloodline of worship. You will never fall on your knees to worship a God that you can fully comprehend. You won't, because that kind of God is small. Paul's God is big. He said, for who has known the mind of the Lord, verse 34, or who has been his counselor? So that's how Paul ends this time of teaching in worship. So let's end this section in Romans as Paul did in worship, okay? Think, reason, use your mind. How is it fair that God chooses some but not others? How can God be in full control over who gets to get saved but yet still hold us accountable for our choices? Why did God choose me out of everyone else to understand and receive the gospel after all I've done? Why have I been included by God to this particular church with this particular sins and list of cultural hiccups? Think, reason, by all means. Ask questions, pry into these things. But if you embark on a futile journey of removing all question marks altogether, you'll be very disappointed and fail. Or you're going to fool yourself to think that you've succeeded and kill your sense of awe and worship of God. Don't do either of those things. Instead, do what Paul did here at the end of chapter 11 relish, worship, wonder, be in awe. Relish in the fact that even if you can't understand it fully, the creator of the universe has chosen you before the foundations of the earth to be an object of his eternal love. A love that you can never lose because you never earned it. Relish in the fact that for some bizarre reason, you've been in his heart before you did anything good or bad. Relish in the fact that he's committed himself to you and those other people in your church as father. Relish in the fact that he's committed himself to give you his life on a cross in order that he may eternally keep you as his own. And then fall down in worship. Behold the wondrous mystery that the king of kings has loved you through and through way before the concept of time began, 
and long after it passes. If you relish on this mystery, you'll fall into worship like Paul did, and your life will be changed. Then you'll be able to join in with Paul in verse 36, who says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you not understanding fully the work of salvation and all its intricacies that you have revealed to us in Romans chapter 9 to 11. Predestination, election, and all these things is confusing. But you have revealed it to us. And I pray, Father, that we would, after have sought through it, reach our limit, get to our knees, and worship this mysterious God who saved us not because we figured him out or figured his love out, but you saved us because of your mercy. And I pray that you would encourage us to have this view of salvation to all of life, even to our church, that we don't control who gets saved. We don't control who receives you. You do. We don't control, therefore, the demographic of our church or who's in and who's out. You do. And our job is to endure and persevere within Christian uh, uh, accountability and reason, of course, but to, to endure and persevere and love others as you have loved us, even when it's hard to do so, even when it requires a lot of patience. Our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price, and therefore we are called to obey and endure. Help us, Father, Covenant City Church, uh, from the many different countries we're from, so to speak, to love one another and understand that it's not a coincidence why we're here. And therefore, rather than asking, how can I get out of this? Before asking that, first, really exhaust the question, how can I love one another and join in God's purpose in this particular church and build a community, build a unity that displays your love and speaks volumes about the gospel to the world outside, that they may know you as they see us and how we love one another. Thank you, Father. I pray these truths would go beyond what my words can say and be brought by the Spirit to change hearts and lives forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.